Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, maybe no surprise. It's a sold-out event tonight, part of WordFest. Uh, Ruth Reichel is in town uh, promoting her new memoir, Save Me the Plums. Ruth is, uh, of course, former editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, best-selling author, previously restaurant critic for the New York Times and food editor, restaurant critic for the L.A. Times. Ruth is in the studio with us, joining us to talk about her memoir, Save Me the Plums. Ruth, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, it's been about, what, 10 years since Gourmet Magazine? Almost 10 out. years. Hard to believe, yes. Uh, talk about the impact that magazine had. I mean, for you, it was just, it was kind of the everything, right? It was hugely influential. It wasn't just for me. I mean, Gourmet Magazine started in 1941. It was the first Epicurean publication in America. And it was the kind of magazine that people just renewed and renewed and renewed. It had legendary renewal rates. I mean, Mm -hmm. people were gourmet families. And for me, I started subscribing when I was eight years old. It yeah. taught me to cook. <laughs> it taught me to love food. It taught me to love stories about food. And it pretty much in its almost 70 years was a history of what was going on in the American food space. And is that what you saw its mandate as to, to encourage just that, that love of food? Yes, but I also saw that that mandate had changed at the point that I came on there, Mm -hmm. that when it started, you know, think about what a gourmet was in 1941. It was basically a fat white man. Right. (laughs) It was James Beard. Yeah. And by 1999, the idea of what a gourmet was had expanded enormously. I mean, Mm -hmm. food had become... Rock and roll, part part of popular culture. Everybody was going out to restaurants. Chefs were, they were rock stars. Yeah. And it needed a new young audience. And that was my mandate is make this a magazine for everyone. So this was 1999. 99. And you were at the New York Times. I was at the, at the time, New York right? Times. Which is a pretty good gig. Which is a very good gig. <laughs> so you are writing for a prominent newspaper. You are the restaurant critic. That's that seems pretty good, and you're you're asked to to walk away from that, right? And take on the responsibility, which is a pretty big responsibility, though, at a magazine that that you revere. Yes, was and, that an easy decision? Well, it was easy decision to me. Was no way? Are you crazy? <laughs> I mean, I really I thought they were out of their minds. I mean, I loved that magazine. It was important to me. I thought that they were right that it was time for it to you know change and come into the culture, but. I didn't think I was the one to do it. I mean, I'm a writer. I'm used Mm -hmm. to sitting alone by myself at a little desk. And the idea of telling 70 people what to do with, it was unimaginable. This is a, I mean, this is a corporate job you're taking on. This is, yes. And Condé Nast is not just any corporation. (laughs) I mean, Condé Nast was, well, it was probably the strangest corporation in America at that point. It was owned by a a billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, um, who loved magazines and um, ran it like... The only thing I can compare it to is the Court of Versailles under Louis XIV. <laughs> wow. I mean, incredible excess. Yeah. I mean, people there had cars. and I mean, if you, if you were an editor there, cars, clothing allowances, um, you know, hair, hair and makeup people show up at your house every morning. Wow. I was like a, an ink strength 
ink-stained <laughs> wretch. I mean, I was a you know subway riding newspaper person. So it was a bit of a culture shock. It was a huge <laughs> culture shock, um, and. I didn't know anything about magazines either. I was a newspaper person. So, mm-hmm. I mean, even the language of magazines was completely alien to me. I mean, my first day at the magazine, they used words that I had no idea what they were talking about. It was like I'd landed on Mars and people were speaking this incomprehensible language. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, people were walking around talking about the TOC. And I didn't know that that meant table of contents. And that was okay. just one word. Yeah. Um, People said something about the well, and I said, oh, yes, water is very important to cooks. And they all <laughs> looked at me and burst out laughing. And I knew, you know, they were all laughing at me, and with good reason. Well, sure, okay, so there's, a, there's an adjustment <laughs> period, obviously, but you obviously saw an opportunity in, in doing that and, and what this could be, right? Yes, and what Cy Newhouse said to me was, we will give you all the, you can do anything you want, we will not micromanage you, and you can have all the resources you need. It's pretty irresistible. I mean, if you're in love with the magazine already, yeah. and someone just hands it to you on a silver platter and says, do anything you want, it's, um, I couldn't say no to it. And then I got there, and I took over a magazine that had been run from the top down. So you know, the three people at the top basically told everybody else who work there what to do and I walked in I I held a meeting on my first day and I said things are going to change this is our magazine what do you want to do and it turns out that the entire staff wanted to do exactly what I wanted to do so I didn't reinvent the magazine they reinvented the magazine and it was so much fun yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and yeah, and this is the story you tell in the magazine. How do you measure success, though, from your perspective? Well, two ways. I mean, one, um, you measure success with your readers by your renewals. I mean, how many people subscribe to the magazine? And at the point that the magazine closed, we had the highest circulation in the history of Gourmet Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, the other way that I measure success is um, the staff's happiness. I mean, I really never wanted to run a place where everybody was miserable. And um, I wanted to call this book The Last Fun Job because <laughs> yeah. when it closed, my creative director said the day that it closed, he said, oh, that was the last fun job. Wow. Why, and, why did they close it? You know... I still, to this day, don't really understand it. Um, we were in a recession, and we lost lots of advertising, mm-hmm. but we weren't alone. They closed a bunch of magazines at the same time. And um, I just, to me, the magazine didn't really belong to Condé Nast. It belonged to the readers. Uh, there were millions of people who really loved that magazine, and when you run a publishing company, that's what you that's that's right. what you hope yeah. for is for that kind of heart connection that you have to your readers, and to throw that away is still incomprehensible to me. Right, and I mean, yeah, it, it, it is a challenging environment for for publications. I mean, I, I get that they they still have, of course, Vanity Fair, right? Well, they have many. The New Yorker, Vogue, New Vanity Fair, GQ, Bon Appetit, yeah. Allure. I mean, they've they've got many magazines 
Um, but it's not the same anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, the world of excess that I came into is gone forever. Um, there are not, you know, hot and cold running (laughs) limousines anymore. Which is maybe for the best, perhaps. But in terms of, you know, the the cultural shift we've seen around food and people embracing the idea of being gourmets. Right. And we've kind of got this whole culture now where we're, it's like we're all doing it. We're all, you know, with our Instagram, we're all food writers now, it feels like. Exactly. And and that's... That's why it's even more baffling because here is this magazine that speaks to something that is suddenly on everybody's radar. And, um, you know, I, in about 2004, I hired a, uh, a photographer from Rolling Stone to shoot a band of chefs. And we had like some of the top chefs in the country and they were dressed up like musicians and we made, we made, instruments out of kitchen implements and um my then boss said um this is going to be the worst selling newsstand cover in (laughs) in gourmet's history but you should run this anyway because you're pointing out a really important cultural moment that chefs are rock stars they are and i mean i i put that story in the book because um one it was true it was an important cultural moment but also the Condé Nast that I worked in, he could actually say, this mm-hmm. is going to be a newsstand disaster, but print it anyway. <laughs> no one would say that today. No. I mean, those days are gone. Yeah, it, it, and you notice it. I mean, even in a city like Calgary, which is, which is a big city, but you, you see it now, there are so many restaurants that embrace that philosophy. We're going to build around this chef and what he brings or she brings, right? And, and their vision and their ideas. And, and people look for that. People look for that. And, you know, the thing that's exciting to me is that the tiny little world of Epicures is now giant. And the people who count today, you know, so in the old days, when I was a restaurant critic in the 80s and 90s, the people who counted the influencers in the food world were basically the rich people who went to restaurants, the rich older people. Now the people who count are young people because yeah. they're all going to restaurants way more than their parents are. And so everybody's trying to please these young people who have, you know, they've eaten everywhere, they've traveled. They also have really interesting um, ethics about food. I mean, they really understand mm-hmm. that food matters and their food choices matter. It is such an exciting world of food right now. By the way, as a restaurant critic, we have this, you know, the the stereotype of the restaurant critic walking in and everybody's paralyzed with fear. <laughs> Did you feel like you had that that power over people? Was it was it actually like that? It was like that. And <laughs> and it was actually why I mean, I wore really elaborate disguises as a restaurant critic. Really? I had characters who had their own credit cards, their own they all had backstories. I knew who they were. Wow. And I had like an old, an elegant old lady. I had a, a bag, basically a bag lady. I had a very sexy blonde, <laughs> Chloe. I had a wild redhead. I had a, a very staid middle-aged woman. And I hired acting coaches. And so I went wow. to these restaurants so they wouldn't know who I was and wouldn't be able to... Um, you know, give me better food than anybody else. Well, right, which you don't want to be catering to a restaurant critic is an obvious temptation there. 
then there's, you know, the knowing that if you're writing a bad review, or do, you, do, you, do you just block it all out that you're there to do your job? Or do you think about, wow, what's going to be the impact if you I write this? You can't not think about it. I mean, it, it is, I mean, especially at the New York Times, we, I mean, that is still yeah. a very powerful perch. Oh, yeah. And people get fired, restaurants close. Um, but I kept on my desk a photograph of a young couple in a restaurant and they kept me honest because I imagined, as I wrote the reviews, I imagined that they were reading the review and they could afford to go to one great meal a year. They went out on their anniversary. Yeah. And every time I thought, okay, I'm going to be a little, I really don't <laughs> want to be mean to this restaurant. Right. I would look at them and they would keep me honest because they were who I wrote for. Yeah. And you know, if I didn't tell the truth, and they went out and had a bad restaurant, a bad meal because I told them to. Um, I would feel worse about that than the fact that some chef got fired because he was not doing mm. his job. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Now, fast forward to 2009 and the magazine shuts down. Uh, you've obviously written some books in, in the interim, but has, has it changed your relationship? To, to the food industry or, or do you still feel like you're doing what you did before you're just doing it in different ways I, I still I am very I mean I, I feel connected to the food industry I love the I love food people I mean I think it's really hard to be a great chef if you have if you don't have a generous soul mm-hmm. it, I think that these are wonderful people and I'm still very connected to people in the food world and I still feel that my mission in life is to get people back into the kitchen, to get people cooking for their families, to bring back the family meal, and to make people pay attention to what they're eating and to understand that you know how you spend your food dollar can really have a huge impact mm-hmm. on the world. Because we feel like cooking is a chore. Sometimes. Or even eating is a chore. Oh, sometimes. please. Eating is never a chore. <laughs> I mean, to me, cooking isn't either. But eating? Really? Well, you yeah. think eating is a chore? I do. You know, and I'm here doing, you know, I'm getting ready for my show. And I just, okay, I, I guess I got to eat my lunch. I'm just kind of wolfing oh, something down on my desk. I, and... I, I'm sorry, but I never <laughs> feel that way. I spend all day thinking about what am I going to eat next? When do I yeah. get to eat it? What delicious thing is in my future? But we shouldn't, yeah, we, we, should, we shouldn't be afraid to embrace that love of it, right? No, we should not. Um, and, I mean, this is natural. I mean, cooking is what separates us from other animals. We cook, they don't. It's also what made us human. You know, I mean, our, our big brains come from the fact that we cook. Mm-hmm. We do. Why do you think we lost that, though? Um, I think it has to do um, in... Um, North America, it has a lot to do with the Puritan background that, you know, I mean, the Puritans were, you should, it's not proper to, they didn't, they didn't much like pleasure mm-hmm. and we have suffered from that, but we're one of the few cultures in the world that really doesn't pay attention to food. You know, in China, when they say hello, what they say is, have you eaten? Yeah. <laughs> Which, and that, is, the fact that we're paying more attention to food now, in my opinion, is the way things should be. And that other way that we used to be was um, an anomaly and wrong. Yeah. The book is called Save Me the Plums, and that's a reference to uh, a saying. 
An that, expression. That's it's in a and it's in a reference yes. to my favorite poem, William Carlos Williams. Um, this is just to say, and it, and the poem is has sort of become a meme. It's it's a short, beautiful mm-hmm. imagist poem, but it's also this was a plum job, and yeah. <laughs> I felt like I needed to acknowledge that. Well, an appropriate title. Save Me the Plums is the book. It is out now. Uh, as mentioned, you get the event tonight uh, here in Calgary, which is sold out, uh, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, here today, Ruth. Congrats on, on the book and all the success, and enjoy your time in Calgary. How could you not? I love Calgary. All right, thank there you. you go. That is Ruth Reichel. The book is called Save Me the Plums, my gourmet memoir. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.